1: It's a Psalm of David when he was surrounded by trouble on many sides. We're gonna use two simple lines from verse six, both to reflect and then to pray. The first is this, many are asking, who can show us any good? In the midst of life we celebrate in the Easter season, we still look around our world and see heartache and trouble. In the last weeks, we've seen mass shootings, tragic examples of deep racial injustice, and the impact of a pandemic that is still having a significant impact around the globe. The Psalm says that many are asking, who can show us any good? It's perhaps a question that our whole world is asking right now, is there any good? And if so, who can show it to us? We're gonna start by taking 30 seconds to reflect on those words. Who can show us any good? Now, lift up a prayer in your own heart for a specific trouble surrounding our world or someone you know, whatever God brings to mind. The psalm's next line offers hope. Let the light of your face shine upon us. In the midst of a world surrounded by heartache, there is still light. The light of the world asks us to be the light of the world, and the one we pray to asks us to become the answers to our own prayers. Take 30 seconds now and ask God to shine his light on you. Notice the sun on your face as you reflect on this. Spirit, if there is some particular step or action you can take to shine that light into a dark world. Amen. Thank you.
0: All right and as you find your seats, We're going to do a slightly different gathering rhythm this morning. We're going to break up our homily into two parts. This first part will be a little bit longer, but we're going to do that to uh, distinguish uh, a couple of different thoughts that we're talking about today. Before I dive into that, I do want to give one more shout out. It's on your worship guide. Those of you who sing and or play an instrument, and by that... You can define that very broadly. I am not looking for musical prodigies, but if you play an instrument, if you sing, We really want to resource, surround, and bolster the work David is doing with our band. David has uh, almost single-handedly poured into our worship community over the last year. We want to bring him more support. Uh, And so Mike Nelson, how about Mike Nelson leading us in worship this morning? Thank you. Uh, We're so grateful for that. And so want to just continue to build out that team. If you play an instrument, if you sing, if you're willing to be a part of this, please Talk to David. He's got the Braves hat on. Unashamed at how bad the Braves are playing this year. Uh, Make sure you talk to David. I'm a Padres fan. I have my own woundedness to deal with. Um, Okay, well, let's get started. So, Holly and I have a disagreement about how to mow the lawn. Uh, Y'all know there's a right way to mow the lawn, right? And it's my way. Um, When I mow the lawn, I mow it the right way, which means you go in a line. And then you keep at least like a third of what you already went over the last time and you go over that part again. Because if you don't do it that way, you get these little sprigs of grass and we just can't have that in our yard, right? If you agree with me, you understand what I'm talking about. If you don't, I don't know how I can help you like there's a right way to do this and so when Holly does it she's like done 20 minutes faster than I would be but there's like always like you know 15 blades of grass just popping up in the yard and so uh, I say that because I like to do sermons the way I like to mow the lawn and so for those of you who are here every single week you may find yourself going I think he said a bit of that last week I did uh I did it on purpose because I can't, like, you guys are my lawn and I can't have, like, little bits of grass popping up. Uh, You can call me a control freak, but that's the way that it is. And so, uh, one of the things that's really important as we approach these times of teaching is to recall that we are not primarily dealing with head knowledge. The head knowledge is only to then resource the formation happening in our actual hearts. So it doesn't bother me if you've heard certain things before, if you've even heard them seven days before, because I want them to get past the head into the heart. And so I just wanted to name that because as we've been going through this Lent and Easter and Pentecost season, you're going to hear some overlapping themes. That's intentional. It's not because I forgot what I said. It's because we want to make sure we're hitting these themes enough that they really get in deep. Uh, If we start to rummage around our hidden hearts, we talked about it at Lent, then what we're going to find is before long we start asking questions that are not simple questions. They go to the heart of what it means to be a human. Who am I, really? And what is my name? What is my self? What is my identity? And so, last week we introduced our Easter theme, the Christ self. We're just Distinguishing between the false self and the Christ self, the the idea of Christian spirituality, the heart of Christian spirituality, is essentially that there are two ways of being in the world. There is the way of my kingdom. There is the way of Christ's kingdom. There is the way of life according to the flesh and life according to the spirit. There is the false self and the Christ self. And so I want to keep on distinguishing between those two, and let's start with the false self the false self. The false self is this deeply entrenched, enmeshed part of my life. It's not something I can just take off when I come to Jesus, and so it sticks around, it wraps around the bones, it penetrates into the marrow to the point that we can no longer tell exactly what is the false self, what is the Christ self. It's all mixed together, otherwise I would just tear it away if I could. But we find that it's not that simple, and so we have these protective, possessive, self-centered, manipulative structures that are so core to our being that we really can't even imagine life without them because we've been seeing life through those lenses for so long. The false self is always fearful, and therefore it is always posturing. It's always trying as an imposter identity to morph and to merge, and to shapeshift in order to make sure that in every moment we are leveraging the moment for the sake of what we feel like will make us safe or will uh, you know, make life work for us. And so at the same time, the false self wants to stand out and it wants to blend in. Can you relate to this? Uh, it, the false self is there, not only it's false because it shows up in relationships and life falsely, but most of all, it is out of alignment with what is most true, which is that God created a good world, called us his children, and intends to see us through. But when we get out of alignment with that, we show up falsely in the world. All right, uh, there's a reason the Bible is fascinating, and one of the reasons I think is most fascinating is that it tells a lot of little stories, but it also is telling one really big story, And one of the, uh, I think, unfortunate consequences of the way over the last hundred years or so churches have taught people to engage the Bible is that we have taught a lot of really zoomed in approaches to the Bible, right? Find this verse and memorize it. Read that chapter. Think about this one part of your reading plan. That's all well and good. But sometimes if you get like really close to a rug, you no longer see the pattern, And so what I want to do, and you see me do this often, is zoom way out on Scripture so that we see the big story in the midst of the little stories. And so this morning, uh, what I want to begin with as we talk about the false self is show the arc of the storyline because, among other things, the first book of the Bible paints a picture of life, what life looks like as it is increasingly shaped by the false self. And so if we remember, in the beginning... God created humankind in his what? In his image, in his likeness. And then the fall. Adam's fall, with Adam's fall comes the power of sin and death. And one reason we celebrate Easter is because Jesus has overcome that power of sin and death. But when it first enters the scene through the fall of Adam, it's like dirt and dust gets poured onto that image of God that is our most fundamental reality, our most fundamental identity. And so the dirt and dust gets piled on top of that mirror of the Imago Dei until we can no longer see it clearly and we start acting as if it was not there at all. We stop to be able to see our with God, like God, life. And the immediate consequence of this is the loss of a stable and centered at-home identity. We lose that identity and soon come the fig leaves, right? Because all of a sudden I feel exposed. All of a sudden I no longer feel safe. All of a sudden, I feel ashamed seeing their own nakedness. Adam and Eve hide from God, their father, and God comes with a question he says, Where are you? Where are you? As you think about the false self in your life, where are you? is one of God's first questions to us. Estranged from the gardener, then Adam and Eve leave the garden and they move to the east. And that's Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 4, the very next chapter starts, we meet Cain, uh, the story of Cain and Abel. And what began in Genesis 3 as shame and hiding by Genesis 4 has become embarrassment, a sense of inadequacy, which leads to envy, which leads to hostility, which leads to murder. And so we see the development already by the fourth chapter of Genesis coming that is making people move from feelings of shame to actions of murder. In other words, it's getting worse, right? Cain sees his own inadequacy and it makes him hate his very own brother. And so he kills him. And God comes with a question Cain, where is your brother? Where's your brother? just like his father and mother then cain's guilt makes him hide and in the very next verse what we get is then cain left the presence of god and lived and settled in the land of nod nod in hebrew means wandering so he leaves the garden that is his home and he moves into a land of wandering and maybe at times in your life you felt like you were living in a land of nod a land of wandering and the land of wandering is where it is east of eden so they leave the garden, they move east, and now Cain's moved a little bit further to the east. And so through that eastward movement in Cain's life comes a radical decentering of his identity. He's moving away from his home. And that is how Genesis 4 begins. By the time Genesis 4 ends, we meet Cain's great, great, great grandson. His name is Lamech. We have not even turned the page of the Bible yet. We're now four generations removed. And Lamech, we don't know much about Lamech, but what we see is that the eastward movement has now become generational. Here's what we know about Lamech. Somebody wounds him. We don't get any more than that. Somebody wounds him. And in his response and reactivity to what has wounded him, he goes and he kills the man who wounded him. And then he takes a victory lap. He brags about it. He says that if Cain is avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech, 77-fold, right? The script of death is being passed down from that first family, but it's getting worse, right? At first, just a little bit of revenge was enough, and now not even seven times is enough. The retribution, the hostility, the vengeance, the revenge, it's got to be 77 times. They're moving further to the east, and the problem is this is the world you and I have inherited, except we're now generation and generation and generation and generation down, and Lamech's not the only one wounded anymore. We're all wounded now. And the movement to the east of the false self causes us to lash out at whatever has wounded us genesis 11 we're now seven chapters later it starts like this as the people moved eastward right you see the bible is doing something very intentional here very specific here it's using these same words to show us a movement the people moved to the east the journey is going further into the land of nod and by now everybody's talking in the same language the eastward movement has become systemic. What happened is one's individual relationship then got passed down to a child that then got passed down generationally and now is in the water of the culture. It's in the water of the way people are. And the further they wander from God's garden, the more removed they are from the likeness of God that they were initially created in. You are created in the likeness of God. That was the the structure of identity people were intended to have. But as we move further away they lose that likeness of god and what do you do when you're far from home when you've lost your sense of home what do you do when you no longer know what your name is what do you do when you've been scattered to the winds they say come they do exactly what we would do come let us build ourselves a city "...with a tower, reaching to the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, otherwise we shall be scattered." In response to the eastward movement, let us build ourselves a city, a home, a structure of identity, a construct that we can control, a center that we can't lose. We lost all of this back here. We've been wandering generationally to the east. We feel the loss of that, and the only thing we know how to do now is take control and build an identity for ourselves. So let's build ourselves a city. And let's build it with a tower that reaches to the heavens, how impressive we'll be. Maybe that will be enough to give us some meaning, to give us some purpose. And you know what? If it reaches to the heavens, we can still access God. We'll just access him on our terms. We'll, we'll climb up when we feel like it. We'll climb down when it's no longer working for us. Let's make a name for ourselves. We'll work for what we fear we won't be given. In order to make a name, because the initial name we were given doesn't feel like enough anymore, and I need a nature, I need a reputation, I need an identity, I need prestige, otherwise I'm going to be scattered. And the ironic thing is they already had been scattered, they are generations down into the land of wandering, they've already been scattered, but they sense it inside, and they're desperately trying to compensate for it, they miss their center, they long for the garden, they want to go home. And 16 chapters later, we meet Jacob. This will be the last part of this movement. Jacob, a grasper who refuses to be grasped. He's hustling. He's conning. He's always working the system. He's gaming to overcome his weakness, and he's longing for the blessing of his father. You all know the story of Jacob. He wants the blessing of a father, but he's afraid he's not going to get it. So what does he do? He covers himself in his brother's skin. Like... That is life for so many of us, covering ourselves in our brother or sister's skin, and his father comes with a question. Who are you, my son? Who are you, my son? How much of our pain comes from not knowing how to answer that question? Who are you, my daughter? Who are you, my son? And Jacob, desperate for that blessing that he's afraid he's not going to receive, he looks into the eyes of his father and he says, I am Esau. And before you know it, he's headed on the run to the north and to the east. Life estranged from his own identity. Eventually, Babel gets a new name. It's called Babylon. And Babylon becomes the biblical place when you are exiled from your homeland. It becomes this representative picture. And ever since then, we're grabbing the raw materials of life to prop up a structure of identity, good looks, and intelligence, and accomplishments, and compliments, and hard work, and a book deal, and a blue check mark on our social media profile. Maybe if I just build that tower a little bit higher. But there's always a gut level fear that the whole thing's coming down, that its miserable foundation will be exposed. And like Jacob, we dress up who we are. Like the builders, we keep on climbing. Like Lamech, we lash out. Like Cain, we harbor hostility. Like Adam, we take and then we hide. Life in the false self.
1: 1 John 3, 1 through 7. See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are, beloved, We are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. What we do know is this. When he is revealed, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And all who have this hope in him purify themselves, just as he is pure. The word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. Thank you, Sarah. And so Jesus looks up from the waters at his father, at the spirit above, hovering to create a new life, and he's hoping for a blessing, and he's looking for a name, and a voice says, and you hear us come back to this all the time because I think it's the heart of the Christian spirituality, the voice says, you are my beloved child whom I love, with you I am well pleased, the Christ self, the Christ self. It is the other way to live. And after the voice speaks over him, he is immediately drawn into the wilderness of temptation, into the wilderness of Lent. And we're following that pattern. And you can see it in your worship guide there, that pattern that shows us how the seasons of Lent all the way through Pentecost give us a template Of how the christ self can rise in us just as jesus rose out of the grave and in the wilderness we are tempted eastward we're tempted eastward because the wilderness has to do with temptations all around self Self self-preservation self-protection self-promotion There's that fear and that scarcity. In other words, all the things that become compelling after we've left our home with God, those are the temptations that come to us in the wilderness, because we don't know that we're still connected to the Father. We don't see the image of God in our lives anymore, and so I've got to make a name for myself. And Jesus is driven out into that wilderness, and at the heart of the temptation is to build a life, is to build a tower, is to construct a, a, a life that we can control a structure that we can control and as we talk about control yes some of us are more controlling than others like having specific ways to mow the lawn uh, but even if you aren't a micromanager on your lawn mowing when i'm talking about control i'm talking about a more deep-seated level I'm talking about a more pervasive attempt that I would wager a bet marks every one of our lives to frantically preserve order in order to stay safe. Our lives feel so fragile that deep down beneath the surface of acting cool and calm and collected, we can become obsessed with controlling it and defending it against real or imagined threats. What is coming in order to disrupt my life? And so life then becomes this fragile shell of stress and it ends up forcing us to misshape our life and its relationships, because I'm so afraid that this thing that I didn't see coming is going to mess up this thing that I'm trying to hold, over to get, hold together over here, and so I've got to conform it, I've got to shape it, I've got to tweak it, and it doesn't matter if the thing coming is another person or a life circumstance, I've got to bend it in order to get it to fit over here, because I'm so afraid of what will happen, so we become manipulative, we become coercive. And put simply, our need for control makes us careful, full of care, full of care, and not care in the good way, care in the way that ends up leading us into a life of the false self. In fact, a primary indicator of the false self is that we are operating outside of mature trust in God. Not convinced he will actually care for us the way he said he would. Not convinced we have a seat at the Father's table that cannot be taken the way he promised. Not convinced that he will be faithful to us. So we build the tower. We go eastward. And that control changes the way we show up in life. I want to read this quote from Bob Mulholland. And it's so good, I'm just going to read it in full. It's on your worship guide there. He says this, Care arises when we are driven by the need to order and control our own lives. Anxiety-driven persons are compelled to impose their own order upon their lives, layer upon layer of defenses, that's the false self, and securities are constructed to keep the unpredictable and unexpected from intruding our carefully ordered worlds. And here's the key and why it matters for us as Christians. Such persons cannot be the persons God intends them to be for others. They are imprisoned by the need to maintain control. They are captive to the need to protect themselves against others and manipulate for their own purposes. And the most tragic aspect of this carefully crafted matrix of relationships is it also insulates us from God. Tense and troubled, such persons expend prodigious amounts of energy to maintain the tenuous control of their lives, energies that could have graced healing and wholeness to a broken world. And I think if we look in the mirror, many of us know such people, but perhaps we are such people. And what's happening here, the false self and the Christ self, is that there is another way to live. The radically other non-anxious, careless in the care of God way to live that we see in Jesus in the wilderness of Lent, he can release control, which is the first step of our pattern, precisely because he has heard what came before the temptation. What came before the temptation in the wilderness of Lent was the voice of belovedness. And if he lives out of that voice of belovedness, it allows us to see the temptations for what they really are, attempts to control our lives, and then we can say no. If we remember what came before, if we remember what came before the wilderness was belovedness, if we remember what came before Genesis 3 was Genesis 1, if we remember that before we went Easter, we lived in the garden of God to the west, we can go back home again and live out of the risen Christ self. And so that is the path back to loving union. If the false self is marked by a lack of union and connection with God, then the clue for us is that the way home is to live in loving union and connection with God. This is how we are transformed, not by trying harder to build a structure, even a religious structure, even a religious self can be a false self, but instead to come home to abiding unashamed and naked in the garden, with God in loving union. And so he's undoing the sad things. Jesus is showing us what spiritual formation looks like. He's showing us that the Christ self rises. Is it any wonder then that when he comes out of the tomb, he comes out of the tomb dressed up like a gardener, right? He's showing us it's getting better. It's getting better he's undoing the sad things, he's peeling back the fall, he's revealing another option for how we can live that is radically other than the way that so many of us think we have to live. And he's showing us that other way. In fact, if Cain is avenged seven times and Lamech 77 times, is it any wonder that when Peter walks up to Jesus and says, how many times should I forgive, Lord, up to seven times? Jesus says, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Do you see what he's doing? He's peeling back the fall. He's moving the eastward movement back home. He's showing you don't have to live Lamech's way in the Song of the Sword. You can move in the way of the Spirit. It's getting better, the Christ self. And who does God name his people after? We'll end with this. He names them after Jacob. Jacob who hustled, Jacob who hid, Jacob who was on the run, Jacob who was pretending to be somebody who he wasn't, and then he came into the presence of God, and he wrestled with God. And in the surprising sunrise of daybreak, that wrestling in the loving union of God, in the presence of God, which felt like confrontation, it changes him. And he's never going to walk the same way. His hip's always going to be out of socket from now on he has changed through the wrestling but when he comes out on the other side of the wrestling god asks him a question who are you and this time he knows it's time to stop pretending and he looks and he says i am jacob and he's learned to name himself for who he is trusting that that's enough and so we look up to the father And we're hoping for a blessing. We're hoping for a name. We're afraid we won't be enough. We're tempted to hide. But the Christ self rises. And see what love the Father has lavished upon us. That we might be called the children of God. And that is what we are. And that is who we will be. We will be like him. We will be made like him. So we're ending this season uh, each, each week during this season with an examine, which is simply a prayer to reflect on how God is coming to us through our lives in order to shape us more into the image of Jesus. And the examine is simply a way to cultivate awareness. And so I want to ask you to just pray with me this examine. I want to ask you to take it home with you and pray it perhaps every day this week. And you can see it there in your guide And the examine is simply this, that as we reflect on the last week, where is God calling the Christ self to rise in me? And so I want to ask you to take a moment right now as we move toward confession, toward the table. Where is the Christ self rising in you? Where is the invitation to say yes to that, to release control, to move westward, come back home into loving union with God? All of this information is only as good as then the way we cooperate with God to apply it to actual life. So converse with God about that.